Starting a new series this morning called Finding Joy. We're going to be looking together through the book of Philippians over the next few weeks. Paul's letter to the Philippians, actually. Um, So as we think about this letter, look at one of Paul's letters. I wonder this morning, when was the last time that you sat down and wrote a letter to someone? Not a text or an email, but a letter, right? On paper, in an envelope, put a stamp on it, stuck it in the mailbox, and sent it to someone. Statistics from the U.S. Postal Service a couple years old um, show that there's been a 61% drop in letters and cards that have been mailed over the last 20 years. 15% of Americans say it's been more than five years since they've written and sent a note to someone, while 33% say it's been more than a year since they received a handwritten note. Compare those numbers, however, to the number of Americans who absolutely love to get a card or a letter in the mail, right? Don't we love to get something in the mail other than a bill or an ad or whatever it is that we get? 94% of Americans say they love to get a letter or card in the mail. Even among millennials, 87% value handwritten notes more than digital forms of communication. My point is really simple this morning that we should send more letters and more cards to one another. And I think we see why in our passage for this morning and also in our passage for two weeks from now that I won't jump ahead to this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, whether it's physical copy or a digital copy, please turn with me this morning to Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. As I said, we're starting a new series of messages this morning, one that will take us through the book of Philippians over the course of the next five weeks. If I was to name this morning my favorite book of the Bible, this would be it. Because I love in Philippians the way Paul writes to the church with such affection and such joy And it's this clear and compelling sense of how the life of Christ shapes the life of his people. Paul was imprisoned at the time that he wrote this letter, most likely in Rome, just a few years before he would ultimately be killed for his faith. And he's writing to a church in Philippi that is, by all accounts, a thriving and healthy church. What we don't find in this letter is a long list of convoluted issues like we find in his letter to some other churches, right? Not to name names, but Corinthians is one example. This is a letter about expressing love and gratitude and joy, which is what we hope to find in this letter over the next month or so. Finding joy is our theme. And I just ask you this morning, could anyone else benefit from some joy? Nope, just me. Okay. (laughs) Finding joy. So we hope Define The great thing about Philippians this morning is that finding joy in the book of Philippians is like playing hide-and-seek with a two-year-old. It's not that hard. It doesn't take a lot of seeking. If you just open your eyes and your ears, it's right there in front of us on the page from the beginning of the letter to the end. Joy, joy, joy. As Paul writes to the Philippians, he tells and shows us where we can find joy in the Christian life, and that begins with us finding joy today in one another. So let's read beginning at the start of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. From the opening greeting in this letter, Paul sets the tone for what he's writing in the rest of the letter rather than identifying himself here as an apostle or claiming all of the fame that he might be entitled to as the author of most of the more books than anyone else in the New Testament. He doesn't claim any prestige. He instead identifies himself and Timothy here as servants of Christ Jesus. And we see that heart of humility in our passage today and throughout this letter. The heart of this letter is never about elevating or promoting self for Paul. It's all about exalting Christ and encouraging others, which is as counterintuitive as it may feel to us. That's the true path of grace, peace, and joy in this life. The current of this world pulls us toward self-centeredness and self-promotion. It promises joy that's found in whatever makes you happy in the moment. It promises joy through declaring, this is my right. It views others as servants to your happiness and as obstacles to your joy, right? Either I'll get my way or you'll get yours. But Paul, after his encounter with Jesus and in his relationship with the saints at Philippi, he doesn't seem so interested in insisting here on his own rights. Instead, he shows us how to find joy, not by looking out for ourselves, but by looking out for one another. He shows us how to find joy in one another rather than in the pursuit of our own passions. He shows us there's a way for each of us to find joy at the same time, not by placing ourselves at the center of the story we are living, but by putting Jesus at the center and others before ourselves. So how do we find joy in one another? This morning, three answers we see in our passage. The first is we give thanks for one another. That's where Paul starts. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It's an unqualified statement of gratitude that Paul Makes, But as we seek to understand and follow Paul's example here, as he follows Jesus, some context I think can be helpful to us because everything about Paul's relationship with the Philippians wasn't perfect. Acts 16 tells the story of the origin of the church in Philippi and the saints to whom Paul would have been writing this letter. That's a story that begins with the conversion of a woman named Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman from Thyatira, As Paul and Silas arrived in Philippi, which was a cultural and economic center of Macedonia, they found that there was no synagogue there, which was where Paul would customarily begin his ministry. And so on the Sabbath day, they went down to the riverside where they found what they expected to find, a group of women who had come together there for prayer. And this group of women was a group of God-fearing believers, but they hadn't yet heard the good news of Jesus. And so as Paul shared We're told that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what she heard, and she believed and was baptized, along with her whole household, imploring Paul and Silas to come and to stay with her at her house. And so, as they continued to preach, that is where they would stay. I share that story with you this morning for this reason, to make sense of Paul's 
gratitude for the saints who were at Philippi. This was thanks that he offered in all my remembrance of you. It was gratitude, he said, always in every prayer of mine. It was gratitude that was expressed in prayer with joy. And I wanna be careful how I say this today for a number of reasons, but as we go through our lives, I don't know about you, but I don't always feel joyful. And I don't always feel grateful. This is a confession that's probably unique to me, like was earlier when I said that I needed joy. But every remembrance of every person does not always fill me with gratitude and joy. Maybe you can relate, maybe not. But my question this morning as I read this text is, what am I missing, right? What does Paul have that I don't? Is Paul some spiritual superhero whose joy is unattainable for us, or can we be grateful like Paul? Some of you are already there tracking with me as we go through the passage, and so let's go to verse 5 where Paul answered those, those questions, I think. He tells us his grateful heart, overflowing in thanksgiving with joy, is not a result of his own spiritual superiority. It's not some superpower. It's the Spirit's power, the same Spirit that is at work in each of us who are following Jesus. Verse 5 says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's the grounds for Paul's gratitude and joy, and it can be ours as well. Partnership in the gospel. What does that mean? Paul's describing here a deep connection with the membership of this church, one that began with the story of Lydia, who heard the gospel, was baptized, and then insisted that Paul move into her home while he continued to minister in the area. This partnership in the gospel is about more than just a shared belief and a set of facts about Jesus. It's about a shared life where living out faith in Jesus and following Jesus on mission is at the heart of everything. And I don't think we should take Paul's words about being thankful in every remembrance here to mean that there had never been a disagreement between himself and and Lydia or the other saints in Philippi. Rather, I take this to mean that years down the road, as Paul looked back at his time in Philippi, what he remembered was how they sacrificed for him and how they sacrificed for one another, how they welcomed him and served alongside him, how they truly became partners in sharing the good news about Jesus. They didn't just say they believed. They didn't just say they were with him. They were with him and he was with them. There was a partnership, a fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. And he says it was there from the first day until now. Hear how Paul describes these same saints in 2 Corinthians 8.2. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It wasn't just Lydia sharing out of her abundance or her wealth. It was every one of them in it together for the sake of one another and for the sake of those they'd never met in places they'd never been, they wanted them to hear and know the love of Jesus. And that's what led Paul here to well up with gratitude for the saints at Philippi. The path to joy begins here. Give thanks, to, give thanks for one another. Let me ask you this morning, are you grateful today for the partnership of others in the gospel, of those in the seats around you today? If you're at home, of those with whom you've served and given and shared your life over these years. Reasons for grumbling aren't hard to find these days, but that was also the case when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians from prison. And so his words, his example here invite us to choose gratitude over grumbling. And so this morning, if you're a note taker, I've got a homework assignment for you this morning for you to write down, and it's this. 
Some of you don't need to, aren't taking notes, just remember this. This week, I would encourage us, let's make a list of people who have been gospel partners in your life. Relationships where the connection went deeper than shared interest or a similar taste to the point where you've worked and you've served and you've sacrificed and given of yourself and your resources side by side to make the love of Jesus known together. Could have been in a ministry here at the church, could have been in a life group here at the church, could have been on a mission trip, could have been in your own family. Make that list and then give thanks to God for those individuals. Paul reminds us that even when we feel most alone, imprisoned in his case, God has given us one another that we might find joy. Give thanks for one another. Second, encourage one another. Paul continues in verse 6 to decenter himself and to place others before himself. He continues to express his gratitude for the saints at Philippi by expressing specifically what he sees in them and what he has seen in them and how he yearns for them. Verse 6 is a familiar one. And he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It can be difficult to find things that are certain in this world. Luke spoke to that a moment ago. The ground feels like it is shifting beneath our feet at times, globally, nationally, politically, culturally, spiritually, to the point that it's hard to know where we can stand. And that uncertainty can produce all sorts of reactions in our lives, anger, grief, fear to name just a few. But I believe one of the greatest lies we like to believe in our day is that it's never been this bad before. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes, though, tells us there's nothing new under the sun. And so I keep coming back to this, but I think it's a key point here. Paul is writing to the Christians at Philippi from prison. If there was reason for uncertainty, anger, fear, and grief, he had it. Imprisoned solely for preaching the gospel, and we have no reason to believe he didn't experience some of those emotions. However, what he expresses here reimagines the world and his relationships in it. We have a tendency to imagine the world as if we're at the center, but Paul's words reveal a different outlook, one where Jesus is at the center and one where following his example and putting others before himself, Paul could say with confidence, I'm sure of this. And what he was sure of wasn't what he could do or what he had done. It wasn't the exceptional character of the Philippian believers. Paul's confidence was this, that God always finishes what he starts. And Paul knew what he had seen God start in the lives of these believers. And so he trusted that it would be finished at the day of Christ's return. Right, what was he pointing to? Perhaps he was recalling the spirit-possessed slave girl who we learn about in Acts chapter 16 who was being exploited by her owners when Paul first came to town. She followed Paul around crying out for several days, disrupting his ministry until Paul commanded the spirit to leave her in the name of Jesus. And such was the change in her life that her owners quickly realized that they had lost their ability to exploit her for their own financial gain. And so they dragged Paul and Silas before the authorities and had them thrown in to jail. Right, maybe that's the beginning Paul had in mind here. Regardless, he was pointing to the faith and the faithfulness of the believers in Philippi. And he says he's right to feel this way because he holds them in his heart because they're all participants in grace with him. 
Here again, he's pointing to their support of him personally, of his ministry, practically, whether in imprisonment or in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is saying to the Christians in Philippi, I know Jesus is at work in your life because I know how you've been there for me. I know you were there in good times and you've been there in bad times. And so he says he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. I ask you this morning, church, who has been there for you? Who's been there to encourage you and to roll up their sleeves and to work and to serve alongside of you. That's where Paul was pointing the Philippians. He felt this way about them because they'd served and sacrificed together so that others could know the love of Jesus. And so I asked you a moment ago to think about those who have been your partners in the gospel, brothers and sisters who've worked arm in arm beside you in life and ministry. I ask you to give thanks to God for them. But Paul's example here also invites us to tell one another what we mean to one another. Remember, start at the beginning, everybody enjoys getting mail, and so write a note or a letter and send it. Tell them this week or in the days to come how you've seen God work in their life. Tell them how you've seen them grow in faith and in love. Tell them how much it means to you that they've been there to serve the Lord alongside you and to be there with you in your darkest moment. Maybe it was the death of a loved one or an illness or the loss of a job or the end of a marriage or just the pit of despair. Tell them, and maybe it would feel strange to tell someone what Paul says here. It might feel strange to say that you yearn for them with the affection of Christ Jesus, but maybe that's part of our problem because Paul doesn't appear to be self-conscious in the least about what he's saying to the saints at Philippi. He doesn't seem to view his expression of affection and emotion as reason for embarrassment. He doesn't seem concerned with being too sentimental or too vulnerable with them. He's just writing with integrity, putting down on the page what's in his heart, and we should do the same. Tell someone how God has used them in your life and how much you appreciate them. It will encourage you, and it will encourage them, and there's joy to be found in that. Third, this morning, we learn in our passage that we find joy in one another when we pray for one another. Paul's thanksgiving and encouragement overflows in the prayer he expresses beginning in verse 9. It's Paul's prayer that their love may abound more and more. That's his opening request. And I believe that it's one that makes sense of the rest of this prayer. And what I mean by that is that what we don't find in verses 9 and 11, I don't think, is this list of prayer requests coming one after the other, like a separate individual request, but that what we find here after this first request is Paul laying out and explaining and showing us what it would look like if our love abounded more and more. I think we can learn a lot from Paul about how to pray for one another, at least I know I can. So we think about the context of this letter, which we'll see more over the next few weeks, the ever-increasing love that Paul prays for here is the love that's expressed to one another in the church. Although, as the next clause of his prayer indicates, that love is shaped and it's formed by our knowledge of a greater love. When I think of abounding in love more and more with knowledge, as Paul prays here, my mind goes to the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 3.16, where he would say this, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I believe that Paul is praying here that these words of John's would be true in the lives of the believers in Philippi, that they would love one another in practical and tangible ways, learning from Jesus what it means to sacrifice and give of themselves and to give up their preferences and their resources and their lives for one another. Paul prays for more and more love among the members of the church. Is that our prayer this morning? As we come together, we pray for effective ministry and we pray that the church will grow. We pray for comfort. But what if we're hindering the answer to all those prayers by not praying the prayer that Paul prays here? The love will abound more and more among us. Let's just consider this. If we love one another more and more, will we not be more effective in ministry? If we love one another more and more, Will the hurting among us not be more comforted? If we love one another more and more, will the church be more or less likely to grow? Paul tells us in verse 10 that the result of this flourishing love will be that we approve what is excellent. Other translations say that we'll discern what is best. We're in a time of transition as a church family, and as our pastor search team begins their work, there will be a lot of questions for them and for each of us. Where are we going? How do we get there? And who is God calling? I think what we need most this morning is what Paul prays here, more love for one another. That would make those sorts of answers easier for us to discern because increasing in love means increasing in Christ-likeness and walking more closely with him. Paul encourages us to pray for more and more love with knowledge and discernment so that we can approve or discern what is excellent, being pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In verse 11, that we can be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul teaches us to pray for one another, to be filled with the fruit, the produce of righteousness or of justice, reminding us in his prayer that the way to that fruit is not just through our own striving and effort. We're reminded here again that the way to find joy is not through placing ourselves at the center of everything, but through recognizing that Jesus is at the center of all things and that the fruit of righteousness comes through him. And as we pray that, if you want to get even more specific, I believe we can do that by turning to Galatians chapter 5, where Paul uses similar language to describe the fruit of God's Spirit at work in our lives. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says this. Read it with me. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There's a lot of things that happen in this world that claim the name of Christ, but don't look much like Jesus and don't bear the fruit of the Spirit. People use the name of Christ to gain power over others instead of to serve others. People use the name of Christ to get their way instead of living Christ's way. And I'm often troubled by how readily We as Christians accept and affirm such people and tactics, but let's not succumb to the temptation today to apply this text to everyone but ourselves. Let's ask this morning, are we filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ? Do joy, 
love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control mark the trajectory of our lives? Do we dare to pray today that they would, even if it means that things aren't always the way we'd prefer for them to be? As Paul prayed this prayer for the Philippians, I wonder if maybe they might have remembered what happened that night in the Philippian jail, where Paul and Silas were being held for the crime of freeing a slave girl from spiritual oppression and economic exploitation. And there in the innermost part of that prison, there were Paul and Silas at midnight praying and singing hymns together. When an earthquake came and struck in such a way that all the doors were open and their bonds were unfastened, for the jailer that night, the escape of all of his prisoners would have been so disastrous that he was about to kill himself when Paul cried out, don't harm yourself for we are all here. They could have escaped, but they risked their lives to stay and to share and to show what the love of Jesus looks like. That's the fruit of righteousness. That's a love that puts others before self. It's a love that Paul prays would abound more and more in the Philippians and that I pray would abound more and more in us. So let's pray for one another, not just when we find ourselves in moments of crisis, but pray for one another every day as if our faith and our lives depend on the God to whom we are praying. Paul shows us how to find joy in one another, give thanks for one another, encourage one another, and pray for one another. We will continue to see this going forward in this book, but the way to find joy in this life is not in, by insisting on my own way, it's by following Jesus' way. That's why the next verse after the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Following Jesus means finding joy by putting to death my insistence on what's easiest or most comfortable for me. Following Jesus means I live my life, as Paul says here, a servant of Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God. It means I lay down my life for others as Christ did for me. The statistics say that writing letters and notes is a thing of the past, but I believe we would find joy in these days ahead by changing that, at least among us. So let me repeat what I'm asking you to do this morning as we close. Make a list of those people who have been your partners in the gospel. Give thanks to God for their impact on your life, but then tell them what they mean to you. Write a note, put it in the mail, and then pray for one another. The love may abound more and more. And I'm sure of this, that you'll find joy as you make the good of others your priority. Our closing song this morning says this, lead me to the cross where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me down. Rid me of myself, I belong to you. Oh, lead me, lead me to the cross. As we sing that prayer this morning, I hope that you know the joy that comes through knowing Jesus. That he came into this world full of sin and suffering to free us from the curse of insisting on our own way. Paul points us here in Philippians to the way that Jesus shows us a better way, a more human way to live and that is to love others as Christ has loved us without reservation or without regret and without condition. That's how we find joy in one another. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's our prayer today that our love would abound more and more. 
with knowledge and discernment, God, that we would approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. God, may we be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of your name. Amen.